So the offering baskets are still making their way around, but I wanted to mention we're starting a new sermon series. It's a little five-part kind of thing that is called He Gets Us, and that you may have heard of this. Um, There is a, uh, really over the next few weeks, if you watch TV, uh, you're likely going to see a series of short videos uh, that will play as ads during commercial breaks, which is, it's part of a a $100 million campaign called He Gets Us. And what these videos are is they are um, evangelistic vignettes that emphasize the humanity and the empathy of, of Jesus. And they're designed to, to be videos that meet people who are maybe sitting on their couches watching TV and not maybe thinking about Jesus much at all. Uh, and they're a way to introduce people to uh, who he really is. From, from the website, um, it says this. It says, he gets us as a movement to reintroduce people to the Jesus of the Bible and his confounding love and forgiveness. We believe his words, example, and life have relevance in our lives today and offer hope for a better future. So as we've been talking about this as, as site pastors, it's a, it's, a, it's a cultural phenomenon that's going to be happening right now. And, and one of the things that, that may happen is people may see these videos, you may see these videos, and it may raise questions about who Jesus is, or you may have people in your life who see these and, and may have questions about who Jesus is. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to offer this short sermon series that's going to interact with some of the themes that are raised in the campaign. So it's a resource uh, for people who may be having questions about Jesus for the first time. Who, who is he? And so I'm going to kick it off today with a look at who Jesus is as our great physician. But next week, we're going to take a pause, we're going to take a break after the first part of a sermon series, to do something else. And that is, next week, uh, we're going to do some vision casting here as a church. And I'm going to spend some time, I'm going to spend the the time of our sermon unfolding God's word together and talking about where the Lord is taking us, what he's doing in our midst. And I have some really exciting things to share for you, some developments, uh, some some, uh, staff configurations, uh, that are that are new and that are very, going to be very timely for who we are now and where we're going and where the Lord has us. And so, uh, so that's what we're going to do next week. I, I wish I was doing it this week because I'm really really excited about it, but I have to wait um, because there's 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 a bit of information to share and I just can't share it yet. But I can next week. Huh? Ah, uh-huh. yeah. So that's exciting. Okay, I'm going to read the passage as we go. Uh, through the sermon. So I'm not going to read the whole thing up front, but I'm going to read it and then expound it and talk about it as we go. But, but what I want to talk about um, here is really something that is, that is precious to me. Um, but I imagine it's precious to a lot of you as well. And that is this call that Christians have in the gospel to live as people whose lives are marked with hope. Hope. And for many of us, To embrace hope, to lean into hope, means to also recognize deep sorrow, to recognize profound brokenness, that the hope is that things won't always be this way, that things won't always be broken. And Jesus 
awakens hope in us. The gospel awakens hope in us. But those things that, that, that make us need hope can sometimes become so sacred to us and so delicate that we can really look at Jesus and say, how dare you awaken hope in me? I'm trying to manage something here. It's, it's like what Red said in Shawshank Redemption, hope is a dangerous thing. When we look at the life of Jesus, one of the things that we see in him is he is not somebody who just awakens hope, but he is somebody who fights to awaken hope in us. And so the question I want us to wrestle with today is where in your life are you guarding against hope? Where are you guarding against it? Trying to just keep it at bay so that you can keep everything manageable. Because when we guard against hope, what we're saying to God is we're saying we don't trust him to lead us through our sorrow. But here's the thing about that. Sometimes, before Christ leads us out of our sorrow, he leads us deeper into it. And we have to trust him to follow him in that way. If we look at Jesus and we say, I'm struggling, I need you to help me, and the way that I want you to help me is to just bring me out of the struggle, sometimes that's not what he'll do. Sometimes what he'll do instead is take us deeper into it. Today's text is going to give us a picture of that, and it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> this passage is one that I, I absolutely love because it challenges things that we might think about how God works. So it's not for the faint of heart, but it is a perfect text for a New Year's Day. And so I want us to venture in, bring with you your sorrow, and bring with you your skepticism. And let's look at Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through, let's say, 43. And I'll read and expound a little bit, and then at the end I'll have some more words kind of gathered up. But this is Mark 5, verse 21 and following. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. This would be Galilee. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell down at his feet, and he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. So here you have Jesus in an era of his ministry where maybe one of the best words to describe who he is now is famous. That he is a popular teacher. He's performed miracles. He's had powerful teachings. Crowds are beginning to gather around him. And why? Why are the crowds gathering? The crowds are gathering because Jesus is beginning to awaken hope in people. They don't understand it yet, but he's awakening hope in them. And then here you have Jairus. And Jairus is this wealthy, respected man in the community. He's a leader there. But he hears that Jesus is around and he goes to him and he falls at Jesus' feet. And this act of, of being a leader and being wealthy and being respected and falling at the feet of another is an incredible sign of sincerity. And what he's doing is he's saying, I'm not 
a wealthy man right now, and I'm not a leader in the community. I'm a dad. I'm a dad, and my little girl is dying, and I don't know where else to go, and so I'm coming to you because Jesus has awakened hope in him in some way. Is that a risk, what Jairus did? To ask Jesus for something like this? The passage goes on. A great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. It's a ceremonial world. We've been talking about that through the Advent season of being in a ceremonial culture. It's a ceremonial culture. In Leviticus chapter 15, verses 25 through 28, in a pretty graphic way, tells us that this woman's condition makes her ceremonially unclean to the point that everything that she touches, clothing, furniture, other people, they become unclean just by way of contact with her. And so for her to be ceremonially unclean in this way is basically effectively to be a ghost in the community. She's there, but she's a socially dead person. She's there in body, but she has no identity other than her affliction and her uncleanness. And she's tried. She spent everything that she had to be healed to no avail. And so it's not just that she's unclean. It's not just that she's had this discharge of blood for 12 years, but now she also has no resources left, only expensive failure. And she sees Jesus in the crowd. The passage goes on. She'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and she fell down before him, and she told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Did you catch it? He calls her daughter. Suddenly now, This is the story of two daughters. It goes on. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Okay, so if you're in Jairus' position right now, how are you receiving this bit of information? How would you feel about Jesus healing this woman? I mean, she delayed Jesus coming. I mean, it was his choice, right? He's, he's the one who stopped 
and interacted with her. But would there be a part of you that would think that maybe she kept Jesus from making it to his house in time? Is this how God works? Is this how you think God works? If you're somebody who struggles to believe in God's ability to meet you in your sorrow in a timely way, then you need to hear this. Here's what it says. Overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Seven people. Seven people. Peter, James, John. Jesus. Mom. Dad. And their dead daughter. Seven people. In the saddest place in the world for at least two of them. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The simplicity and the tenderness of those two words Talitha Kumi. They basically mean, honey, get up. You have a dead girl living, and you have an intimate moment. You have the second person of the Blessed Trinity, incarnate in the flesh, waking a child. It's an intimate thing to wake a child. What I want to do to bring this together is name two truths from this passage and then two applications. And I'm going to do this quickly, but two truths and two applications. And if you are somebody who is guarding your heart from hope for fear that God will let you down, here are two truths for you to consider. The first, God is not constrained by time. God is not constrained by time. In his word, he labors to tell us this. He labors to tell us that his timing is not our timing. He says things like a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. It's, it's meant to be this impossible math that encourages us to just let go of the clock, right? It means that perceived deadlines can come and go whooshing by. And from our perspective, what we needed and wanted is now impossible. Don't bother. The girl is already dead. But that is no constraint at all for God to do exactly what he means to do. With God, it is never too late. 
It's never too late. He's not constrained by time. That's the first truth. The second truth is this. What God does for somebody else has no bearing on his ability to do something for you. What God does for somebody else has no bearing on his ability to do something for you. He doesn't run out of power. When God blesses somebody else, do you ever feel that, well, because he did that for them, I guess it won't happen for me. I guess I won't get the thing I need. What God does for the bleeding woman has nothing to do with what he does for Jairus' daughter, except that they both healings come from the same power. We're talking here, we're venturing in right into the territory of comparison. You can't compare your situation in life to somebody else's situation in life as if what God has done for somebody else has anything to do with what he means to do for you. Because what does he tell us? He says, I know what you need. The birds and the flowers, right? He feeds them, covers the field in them. And you're much more precious to him than that. He knows what you need. So those are the two truths. God is not constrained by time. And what God does for someone else has no bearing on his ability to do something for you too. So I want to move toward two ways to move toward hope very practically. Two points of application, if you will. And the first is this. Move toward Jesus in whatever condition you're in. You're on the verge of losing something, someone. You're suffering, you're afflicted. Move toward Jesus in whatever condition you're in and do this in the context of community. Don't withdraw into yourself. Jairus and both the woman take a risk in putting themselves out there. It's easy for us to think that Jesus doesn't want to deal with us until we've cleaned ourselves up a little bit, right? But sometimes the affliction that we're facing or our addiction or our sorrow or our past, that is, you don't know what I've done and what I've done is who I am, that kind of past. Sometimes it's so big that we can't imagine how we could ever begin to deal with it and pull it together so that we could then go to Jesus and present ourselves to him. Go to him in the condition that you're in. It's a mercy whenever Jesus moves us to a place where all we can do is turn to him. Because the truth is, we're never not in that position. That's always the position we're in. All we can ever do is turn to him. There's no other card we can play. But we can easily forget that's the case. You may feel like your situation in your life precludes you from knowing Jesus, but Jesus' response to this woman assures us that in our desperation, the best thing we can do is seek Jesus, even in our most unclean and undesirable condition. Move toward Jesus. He will not turn you away. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. I mean, let's look at this bleeding woman real quick here because she comes to Jesus desperate. When we come to Jesus, we come to Jesus desperate. We come needy. But when this unclean woman comes to Jesus, she, she touches him. And what happened when she did? She didn't make him unclean. The opposite happened. He made her clean. By his power, he took away 
her impurity. And then what happened? Then he stopped everything and he found her. And he talked to her in front of everybody. Why? Why did he do that? She got her healing. Jesus could have in his mind just silently nodded and said, I knew that was going to happen. Why did he stop? I think for two reasons, probably uh, certainly more than two reasons, but let me give you two. First, to make sure that she knew. To make sure that she knew that her faith hadn't just made her clean, but it had made her a daughter. That she was a daughter of the living God. But I think the other reason that Jesus stopped and found her and talked to her in the crowd was to make sure that everybody else also knew that she was no longer who they thought she was. She was clean now. And this is what happens when Jesus heals us. We don't touch him and defile him. He makes us clean. The second last application, I told you this was going to go quickly. The second last application is this. In prayer, this one's not for the faint of heart. In prayer, enter with Jesus into your rooms of sorrow and loss and death. Jairus' hope is awakened by the information that he has about Jesus, the miracles he's performed, the stories he's heard, but it is also awakened by his desperation. He's, he's desperate. And his friends, they come and they tell him, it didn't work. Don't bother Jesus anymore because she's gone and you just got to let her go. And Jesus intervenes and he says, no. No, she's not gone. I can wake her up. See, Jairus had come to Jesus with a portion of hope. He had some. But at this point, his willingness to really hope gets tested in ways that he didn't anticipate. Because what Jesus is asking Jairus and his wife to do is he's asking them to go deeper into their sorrow. He's asking them to enter a room with him that holds their deepest sorrow with the promise that he will turn their mourning into joy. I mean, think about, imagine the scene. Let your mind go there. When Jesus asks Jairus and his wife to go with him, to the girl's bedside, he is asking them to enter into the saddest place on earth for them and to trust him there. You've got rooms like this in your life and I've got rooms like this in my life, don't we? We have places like this in our hearts, places that we hold as sacred because they house our deepest pain. They're the rooms that we close the door and seal off and just never go in there again. Because we're afraid to hope for them to be healed. 
And so we just do what we can to just keep our distance. What are they for you? What are your rooms of sorrow and loss and death? To enter into the hope Jesus Christ offers us is to follow him into the places of our deepest pain, acknowledging, even through our tears, that Jesus is no stranger to places like these. He's no stranger to this. He isn't. He he is our man of sorrows. He is acquainted with our grief. And so the bleeding woman and Jairus both come to Jesus, and they have immediate problems, here and now things, that they're asking him to intervene with. But those here and now problems, they speak to a deeper level of brokenness that's part of the world we live in. In this side of glory, there's no shortage of those. There's no shortage of sad things. But the healing that Jesus gives them, he does give them healing for these immediate here and now things. But that too is a picture of a much greater, much more perfect, ultimate healing that is the destiny of the people of God. The the mystery of living here will disappear into a perfect end. And because this is so, draw near to him in your sorrow now. Don't numb yourself, but through prayer and scripture and community, drink from the fountain of truth because we have, we have, we have a great physician, it is not too late for you. He's got you, and he loves you, and he knows you. And you can rest in that, and you can trust him, even when he leads you deeper into it. Blessings upon you all in 2023. Father, When I read this story or I think of the raising of Lazarus, both of these places where you don't show up in time from the perspective of the earthbound, you show us that time doesn't hold you back, that you do what you will do, and that nothing can stop you from accomplishing your ends. And yet, in those times when our perceived deadlines go past, Part of the work of trusting you and following you is going even deeper into the pain and deeper into the sorrow. And Lord, we confess that we don't like that. We'd rather that you just heal it all without it being a journey. And yet you lead us. And so Father, give us the faith and the confidence to trust you as you lead us. Lord, as we step into this new year, Lord, we don't know what it will hold. We do know that it will have pain and that it will have joy, uh, that it will have blessing, that it will have struggle. We know because that's part of what it's like to live in this world. Give us what we need for what you've prepared us for this year and what you've prepared for us. And we thank you for your mercy and kindness. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.